0: Recently, a friend told me about a study that had been conducted on the effect of the qualities of intimacy and caring, the effect of those qualities on the quality of people's lives, on the richness and feeling of connectedness of people's lives. A study was conducted in a nursing home What happened was that every resident of the nursing home was given a plant, and half of those people were told that the plant would be put in their rooms and that the nursing staff would take care of the plant. And the person themselves, the recipient, could look at it and admire it and enjoy it, but they would have no role in directly caring for it the other half of the population was also given a plant, each person given a plant, and they were told that they were going to be responsible for taking care of it, that they themselves would have to water it and watch it each day to see what it needed and be directly involved in the care of that plant. This went on for six months or a year, and what was discovered at the end of that time was that there was a tremendous difference between those two halves of the population, that the half of the people who were involved in caring and responsible for their plants were becoming much more alive, much more energetic. They were getting sick a lot less. They were living longer. As compared to the other half of the people in the nursing home. This was considered in the light of the importance of intimacy and connectedness and caring in the quality of our lives. When I heard about the study, one of the things that struck me was that We most often consider intimacy in terms of our relationship to someone else, or now, even something else, even a plant. And we very rarely consider intimacy within the context of how we are relating to ourselves, whether we are intimate and directly, personally connected to the depth of our own being, if we are relating to ourselves in that kind of caring, responsible way. Meditation is very much the transformation, the redirecting of that kind of energy towards oneself, oneself as a basis for understanding. It's the intimate exploration in a very direct way of our own personal experience, developing our own vision of the nature of things, of the nature of our lives. Being intimate, being connected with ourselves. Meditation is like turning on a light in a dark room. It doesn't matter if the room has been dark for two days or 10,000 years. Just turn on the light. And with that act, so much becomes revealed. All those dusty little corners that have been overlooked. All the grand and marvelous kinds of objects that have been tucked away. So very much gets revealed. It's like the greatest attic exploration ever. If you're the kind of person who like to go into old attics, and poke around and see what was there. Well, this is it. There's so much, all all levels, all aspects of our being become revealed to us in the most direct way. There's certain understandings or certain attitudes that we can bring to the practice that help enhance this process, that help make it that much fuller and that much richer. When I was first practicing, in fact, with Menindraji, one of the first things he said to me was, as you begin the practice, as you begin paying attention to the breath, you should try to be with each breath as though it were your first and as though it were your last. And in just that way, to be with each experience, each step, each sensation, each thought, as though it were the very first, and as though it were the last. To be with each experience as though it were the very first has really two levels in our understanding and in its application in our practice. The first of these is what Alan mentioned the other night in terms of having a beginner's mind. This is the power and the immediacy to be able to be fully and totally with the moment's experience. It's a totality of attention. Our attention is not divided, it's not split within itself, because we are simply present with what's happening, not comparing it to something in the past, not experiencing it in relationship to something else, or in reference to something else, but as it is in itself, in its wholeness. A direct connection in the moment. When you examine your life as we examine our lives, something that becomes apparent is a kind of addiction to sensation that we often get involved in, in our quest for fulfillment. As something happens in our lives, If we are not present, if we are not wholly alive in that moment, to that experience, there's bound to be a level of dissatisfaction, of discontent. And because we mistake the root, the source of that discontent, to be in the object, we search for a more intense object and a more stimulating object and then a more intense object to try to awaken within us that sense of completeness, of wholeness, of aliveness. And we become involved in what Robert Frost described in one of his last poems. We become involved in life as an interminable chain of longing. Wanting this and wanting that and longing for this and longing for that as though what was present, what was arising genuinely in the moment, were never enough. If you think about just the simple kinds of things we experience here, you're eating a banana. Can you eat that banana as though it were for the very first time? you were exploring, you were experiencing that particular fruit. As opposed to the mind that says, I've had nine million bananas, I wonder if they're going to serve bananas every afternoon. (laughs) I wish they'd serve something else, you know, and on and on and on and on. To return to the experience of the moment as though it were for the very first time. When we don't do this, when we don't pay attention, then there resides within us a wistfulness, an emptiness that can never be satisfied because we're looking in the wrong direction. This gives rise to the companion of the just-in-case syndrome, which is the if-only syndrome. If only. If only they'd serve peanuts, then I would be happy. Or if only it hadn't turned warm today, then I would be happy. Or if only I could get this or that, then I would be happy. It's this perpetual putting off, postponement of a sense of completion, which is endless. It's entangling. The only way out of it is to remove oneself from that chain of longing. When I was first doing this technique and I was instructed just as you've been instructed to try to be mindful throughout the entire day whatever the activity to con- to consider the mindfulness as something to be applied continuously in each moment and to use the mental labels in as precise a way as possible. I found myself walking around this compound in India where we were practicing using the mental notation of waiting, 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 <laughs> waiting, <laughs> waiting, 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 waiting. And one day, I just asked myself, what are you waiting for? <laughs> and I realized that I was waiting for something important enough to happen or powerful enough to happen or exciting enough to happen for me to be aware of it. And I recognize that that was something I did and that many people do very often in their lives. We're in a state of waiting. We're on hold until we can wake up, until we can be alive. And it's very unfortunate to be caught in that syndrome. Second aspect of relating to experience with the totality of attention, with the beginner's mind, has to do with the ability to experience what's happening in the moment fully with a sense of openness, of allowing and acceptance. It's being able to abandon for the time being our concepts and ideas and images about things abandoning them, leaving leaving them aside for the sake of being able to have a more personal, intimate experience of what's arising. To be able to develop our own vision of the truth, of the nature of things. Not to be bound to some idea or model or preconception that we may be carrying around. And Trungpa Rinpoche talks about the act of taking refuge, which is how we began the retreat. He discusses it in terms of taking refuge to become a refugee, to approach this process of exploration from the standpoint of not carrying around a lot of baggage, of not having a reference point back there somewhere to say, oh yes, I'm this or I'm that, but to be open, to be empty, to be born anew with the experience, not to be clutching, not to be holding on. When you think about all of the opinions and ideas and concepts and viewpoints that we carry around, they had substance actually it would be a miracle, really, if we were ambulatory. Just so much stuff, so many points of view. And what a relief just to leave it aside, even for a little while, and to explore in as new a way as possible who we are and what, what this process is all about. To have that sense of openness and... Humility and caring in observing our experience is quite subtle. It's not so easy to find that that balance, that totality of attention. The biggest detriment to being able to do this is having some sense of gaining idea of a particular thing or experience or state being important to experience and either waiting for that or comparing and judging whatever is actually happening in relationship to what we believe should be happening. When the book Zen Mind Beginner's Mind first came out and that's the book from which the phrase is taken, I was back in America for just a short visit in between trips to India and uh, my practice at the time was fraught with gaining ideas, very goal-oriented, very specifically goal, goal-directed. And I heard about the book, and my thought at the time was, oh, right, you know, I, I have a sense of what that's about. You start off practice with a beginner's mind, and you work really, really hard, and, and one day you reach the ultimate goal, you have a Zen mind. And and that's the accomplishment, is that you get rid of your beginner's mind and someday, after a lot of struggle, you know, you get your Zen mind. And it was a long time later, after I'd been back in India, and thankfully enough, having changed some of my practice as well, and somebody sent a copy of the book. And I read the book and I realized that, lo and behold, that... it was quite, quite different from that concept that the beginner's mind itself was in a sense a kind of attainment. and So that is what we work towards, that's what we work with, that, that attitude and that approach towards our experience. The second component of that, being with the breath or being with what is arising in the moment, as though it were for the last time, not to have a sense of complacency about our experience, but to be really at the forward edge of opening to it, of experiencing it fully. Everything we experience, our lives themselves, are so very fleeting, so transitory, and so very much out of our control. that a sense of complacency is out of place with the truth, with understanding. If you think, even just in being here in these, what, three or four days, how many mind states have you experienced? How often have they changed? Constantly constantly changing, and to appreciate that, the impermanence, the evanescence of our experience of our lives, is an important perspective with which to view what we're doing. Not to be living here day to day or hour to hour as though we had it forever. But bring an immediacy and a power to each moment. Recognizing how fleeting, how transitory it all is. This is very much in the spirit of um, Krishnamurti saying, freedom is now or never. All we have is right now, over and over and over again. And so the spirit with which we view the practice is that freedom is now or never. And if the previous 30 minutes of nows have been spent in daydreams, then again there's a now. Again there's a new beginning. And to return to beginning again, with that much fullness and that much wholeheartedness as we start again. There are three predominant forces that we find in the attic that are conditioned tendencies that sometimes make it difficult for us or more difficult for us to be so fully in the moment with totality and with openness. and I'd like to talk just a little bit about these three. The first of these forces or factors in the mind is attachment to pleasant objects, to pleasant experiences. And this is the force or the, the feeling of holding on, wanting to hold on, wanting to grasp or cling to that which is pleasant, whether it's a pleasant sight, or sound, or taste, or meditation experience, whatever it is. The consequence of being attached, of holding on to that which must inevitably change, is very obvious. The Buddha used a simple example. He said that holding on to that which in its very nature is going to be impermanent. is like grasping really tight onto a revolving wheel and just holding on for dear life onto this wheel. Sometime, at some point, in one of the cycles, one is bound to get run over. That's just the nature of things. If you hold on to the wheel as it's turning, you're going to get run over. And this is our experience, that to hold on or try to hold on, try to grasp that which must inevitably change, whatever it is, whether it's a mind state or a physical experience or whatever, is the creation of insecurity and dependence. It's the dependence on a very conditioned kind of happiness a happiness and a sense of fulfillment and wholeness that is dependent on a particular thing happening and then not changing. What could be more fragile than to be that dependent on illusion, on something happening and then not changing? And so it's a state of suffering or difficulty we see that over and over in our lives what happens if we're attached to summer and then autumn comes do we pout do we cry do we complain what can what can we do it's just in the nature of things for impermanence for transition to happen but what happens often as we grow old or if we get sick or if we lose something or someone, there's tremendous despair and grieving. Can we look in the mirror and say, well, I've thought about it very carefully, and I've made the determination that I'm just not going to grow old. You know, I'm going to hold on to this body in this way, and that's the way it's going to be. We can't do that. It happens outside of our control. Yet to take old age, as a personal humiliation, which so many of us do, is a source of great suffering. It's a source of suffering, not because it's bad or because it's wrong, but because it's out of harmony with the truth of things. It's out of harmony with the way things are. It's as out of harmony as trying to hold on to summer or hold on to spring. So learning to live gracefully with change, not holding on to the pleasant, allowing it to arise and pass away, and feeling a sense of unconditioned happiness, not based on pleasure and not based on things staying the same, but based in a very different way of relating to all of our experience to a sense of fulfillment. The second aspect that we often see in the mind is what Joseph talked about last night, which is aversion to unpleasant experiences. It's that, that temptation to withdraw and separate ourselves from something unpleasant out of fear or out of dislike. It's essential to understand within the context of doing this practice, that there's a very big difference actually between pain and suffering. And that pain like pleasure arises and passes away just in the natural course of events. Sometimes wonderful things happen, sometimes painful things happen. They just arise and pass away according to their own nature. Suffering is generally the result, it's the fruit, of how we are relating to that pain, whether it's through comparing it to the past or projecting it through time, having that sense of, this is never going to change. You, know, you can see it very commonly even just in doing a sitting and experiencing some physical pain, some knee pain or back pain. Right away, there's that thought, There must be 45 minutes left to the sitting. I'm never going to make it. And with that thought, what happens? It's as though we're taking the experience of the the moment and adding on top of it 45 minutes more worth of pain, and then trying to bear it all at once. (laughs) And we can't do that. It's just too much. And to begin to see how we do that for 45 minutes, worth of projection. We do that for an hour's worth of projection. Sometimes we do it for a lifetime's worth of projection and try to experience the pain of a lifetime all at once. Just to begin to understand the difference between the actual experience and our direct immediate connection to it, and the different patterned ways we're relating to it that very much affect the quality of that moment, to be able to be as open and completely present with unpleasant experiences as we are with pleasant experiences. That open and that accepting. There was a poster that I saw in Africa recently which had this stone tunnel and there was going through this very large mountain and you could see through the tunnel into the light beyond, into the the sunlight and the sky beyond. And the caption under the poster was, the only way out is through. And that's very much what we mean by relaxing into the experience, settling into the experience, whatever may be happening, even if it's unpleasant, It's not making the effort to transcend or go beyond what is happening, but to take what is happening and to penetrate to the very depth of it, knowing that in the very depth of that moment, whatever it might be, there lies the truth of it. And that we don't have to trade it in for another experience. It's not as though there were a certain thing that could reveal the nature of life to us. But each moment shares that, that nature and each moment can reveal it if we are willing to surrender enough to go completely to the depth of that and not get involved in, if only, if only the pain would go away, you know, then then I could really meditate on the moment, which is so often what we do. Again, having a sense of aversion, just in that sense in that same way as having a sense of attachment, is not bad or wrong. It's not something to be judged or disliked. It's to begin to uncover the ways in which we do not live in harmony with the truth, and then to reorient our sense of ourselves and our lives so that they are more in harmony with how things truly are. It's in this sense that we develop the quality of equanimity. It's not equanimity for the purpose of becoming passive or abject or succumbing to our day-to-day lives and just being being flattened as things arise and pass away. It's a sense of surrendering rather than a sense of succumbing. It's a sense of equanimity that allows us to be wholly present and fully alive to that experience, even if it's unpleasant. Because our conditioned tendency is to withdraw and pull away and to hide and to discard it or try to discard it. It's that sense of equanimity which allows us to be present enough to be able to embrace it to be able to use that as well as a time for understanding. It's said that after the Buddha was enlightened he was very reluctant to teach and that according to the legend a celestial being appeared before him urging him very much to teach for the sake of suffering humanity to be able to to relieve the difficulties that people were were living with, and said that the Buddha used his psychic vision to survey the world, and that based on what he saw from that moment, he made the decision to teach. It's also said that what happened during that time for him as he surveyed the world was not even so much that he came in touch with the depth and the degree in which people were suffering. It wasn't that so much that aroused his compassion, but more the fact that what he saw was that everyone wanted to be happy, and that most people were going about trying to be happy in the most deluded ways imaginable. And it was that sense of ignorance of people wanting so much to be happy and to live lives of happiness and joy, yet not understanding how to bring that about. That is what so awakened his compassion and, it said, made him make the determination to teach. It's that understanding that the kinds of ways we have conventionally attempted to bring about a sense of joy or a sense of peace, often simply do not work. Holding on to to pleasant experiences, we think somehow that the harder we hold on, the more chance we have of making it stay. And yet it doesn't work. It has a lot of the same flavor as banging your head against the wall. trying to push away unpleasant things, make them not happen. Again, it doesn't work. It's not conducive to a sense, a sense of harmony, a sense of wholeness. And so it's beginning to disentangle that web of conditioning and coming to a whole, wholly new approach to ourselves and our experience. The third element, the third kind of conditioning that we often see in the mind is simply that of delusion or dullness. It's an aspect of not being present and not being awake, especially when what is happening is sort of mundane and it's not strikingly pleasant or strikingly awful, but it's just kind of happening and we're just kind of moving along. And we're not, we're not very penetrating, we're not very deep, often when these things happen. And yet if you add together, if you first take all of those moments which we don't want to fully experience because they don't feel so good, and you add to them all the moments which we're basically not present for, because they're more or less neutral, the sum total of those two piles (laughs) of experience is pretty big. And what's left over in one little corner are the moments that we're fully present for, with an immediacy and a wholeness. And it's like we have a little package, and we cherish it, you know, and this is our life. Whereas really, it is all part of our lives, every aspect of it. And we can experience it as deeply and as directly as we do those precious few moments that we kind of identify as being really awake or being present. Again it returns to having a sense of our direct experience and the understanding that each and every moment is equally valuable, whether it is painful or pleasant or neutral, and that our energy, our effort is directed towards being as fully and completely present and aware with each and every moment. When I first went to India, it was 1970, and it was just around that time that Ramdas had published his book, Be Here Now, which for people of that generation was, was kind of the spiritual bible of the time. And I remember reading the book and thinking, as did so many of my contemporaries, oh yeah, that's right, you know, that's what I believe in. I believe in being here now. That's, that's my creed. And then I went to India and I was doing my first meditation retreat and it happened, just so happened, that Randhas was also there, sitting for that retreat. And I would be sitting there in misery and hating every moment and thinking, with despair, you know, what am I going to do to make the pain go away? And what am I going to do to make the sleepiness go away? And, you know, maybe I'll go do yoga and I'll do this and I'll do that, you know, and, and then it'll feel better. And then I can start being in the moment. And I would, I would be going through these, these conversations with myself, and every once in a while I'd open my eyes and I'd see Ramda sitting there. And I'd say, oh, that's right, be here now. That's what I believe in. I believe in being here now. And I kind of remember, oh, right, that's why I'm here. (laughs) And I recognized, much to my dismay, that I couldn't select the moments when I was going to be here now. (laughs) And that it came as kind of a package deal that either I was going to orient my life in that way and make the effort to be here now every single moment or not at all. And so I just had to continually remind myself that all of it was what it was about. It's seeing the the tendencies, the conditioned patterns of attachment to that which is pleasant, and aversion to that which is unpleasant, and delusion or dullness towards that which is neutral. And not so much doing battle with them or getting into a sense of combat or war, but being able to sense these forces quickly as they arise in the mind and not allowing them a foothold. Just to allow these thoughts or these feelings, whatever form they might take, to come and go without being the overwhelming veil which colors how we are seeing the experience of the moment just to allow them to arise and pass away and, and staying free, staying in the moment with the direct experience. It is the most pragmatic and direct approach possible. There's nothing separate or apart from this process of awakening. And it is not in any way an intellectual understanding. The example is often used of somebody who comes down with malaria and then goes to a physician and is given a prescription for quinine. And there are several ways to approach, approach this, this issue. There might be one person who gets the prescription for quinine and then goes to the medical library and starts doing research and then research the history of quinine and the chemical composition and all the other diseases in which quinine might be used and all of the different variants on malaria and then, you know the history of how malaria was discovered and on and on and on, and yet never takes the pill. The most important thing is to take the pill. You might then find interest or deepening from going and studying all of those different aspects. But the heart of it, the essence of it, is taking the pill. And that is why within this environment, within this practice, we concentrate almost to the level of austerity on just being with the experience of the moment. There are no frills. People have called it the bare bones approach to meditation. It's the simple and direct returning over and over and over and over and over and over over again to the present moment. And using that direct experience of the moment to form the basis for one's own understanding. To derive from what is revealed, out of one's own experience, a sense of what is true. And renewing that through the process of simply being aware on deeper and deeper levels of the nature of the reality that presents itself. There's a quote from the the Japanese poet, Ryokan. He says, to find the Buddhist law, drift east and west, come and go, entrusting yourself to the waves. We entrust ourselves to the waves because each wave is an expression of the nature of water. And to find, to uncover the nature of water, we don't have to look someplace apart from the waves. We can entrust ourselves to each wave, knowing that within it, at the very depth of it, we can come in touch with the nature of water or the nature of reality of our lives. And so the whole process is learning how to entrust ourselves to the waves, which is different than drowning (laughs) and being possessed by the waves. And it's also different than kind of jumping in and thrashing about and struggling and pushing the waves away and trying to flatten them out. It's a very delicate and complete kind of balance we can move gracefully with the waves and not only move gracefully, but be awake enough and alert enough to be able to penetrate in that moment to what can be revealed about the nature of reality. Okay, I'd like to close now and not take any questions. Um, I would just like to say at the end that even in the simplicity of the practice, there is a lot of difficulty. It's not so very easy to come here and to develop or extend whole new ways of of being and, and looking at ourselves and looking at our experience, it's quite difficult sometimes. Sometimes more than sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes a lot. And so it's important to have a great respect for the process and to understand that if there is difficulty, it's not because you are incapable of doing it or everyone else is finding it easy or there's something wrong, or there's something that that should be different. It's difficult, because it is difficult. And to have great respect for this undertaking, and have respect for yourselves and for each other in making a commitment to this undertaking. You know, sometimes when you hear stories about the Buddha, or saints in India, or in any religious tradition, really, it sounds so glamorous. It sounds so so wondrous. You hear stories about the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment sitting under the Bodhi tree and being attacked by Mara, who's like the embodiment of um, struggle in modern-day terms, and, and being attacked by visions of lust and desire and hatred and boredom and dullness and sleepiness. And it sounds so exciting and dramatic. <laughs> You know, and you think, it sounds so much better than, you know, I came to Barry and I sat there and my knee hurt and I fell asleep and I was full of desire. And, you know, and yet it's the same process. It's not different. Or you hear stories about the Desert Fathers being attacked by demons of pride and the demons of lust and, you know, the demons of of this and that. And it sounds, wow, what an undertaking to go off to the desert, you know, so austere and to be able to withstand that kind of, you know, that kind of intensity. And it's not different. It's the same process that people have have undertaken from time immemorial, probably, to come to a very different and deeper sense of understanding. And so I think it's important to, to afford the process and yourselves a good degree of respect in understanding that even though it doesn't sound so glamorous and doesn't sound as magnificent, it's very profound and very important. Okay, thank you.